He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. Come on. Let's give him more of our worship and our praise. We thank you, God. We praise you, Lord. We magnify your name, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen. I want you to know you're on the winning side today. Your past might be scattered with defeat and disappointment, but your present and future is filled with victory in Jesus. You're not a loser. You're a winner. You are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, today. Hey. Amen, 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 amen. I direct your attention to Daniel chapter number one today. Thankful for what I feel in this place. Thankful for your responsiveness to the Spirit. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that we started a series last week called Thriving in Babylon. We talked about how the Israelites, or Judah really, was carried away to Babylon and first couple chapters of Daniel gives us a look into the Hebrew children. And the first thing we identified that Babylon will try to do is change your name. The enemy wants to change your identity. He wants to call you what you are not. But I got news for you. Only the creator has the right to name the creation. Only the creator can call the created what it is and what it was meant to be. The world can't define us. The enemy can't define us. Only God can. And he said, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, his own special possession. You're our sons and daughters of the king. Amen. Daniel chapter 1 verse 5, it says, and the king appointed for them a daily provision the king's delicacies of the wine which he drank. Three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Listen, he he makes a stand. And listen to the next verse. Now God. Daniel says, I'm purposing, I'm making a commitment and a covenant in my heart that I will not defile myself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed you food and drink. For why should we see your faces looking worse than the young men who are in your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Understand, I know we're kind of pulling back from last week, but Daniel is the author of this. Daniel did not accept those names that Babylon gave him. And so when he's writing about himself and his friends, he said, my name is Daniel. 
He's Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. We're, we're, not, we're not accepting those godless names. Daniel says, please test your servants for 10 days. This is where we get the Daniels fast. But it wasn't a fast. It was a way of life. Test us for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. I've learned that on the Daniels fast, you can eat at Qdoba. Their, their, to, their tortilla chips are Daniel approved, someone once told me. That's what Daniel was eating. He was burrito bowls every day. I know some of you are food experts when it comes to fasts, Daniel fasts. You become chemists and you mix and I'm going to be on a Daniel's fast and I'm going to have dessert, but it's going to be Daniel approved dessert. Some of us eat better on a Daniel. Uh, I digress. Verse 13, then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. The, the next goal in Babylon is to control what you consume. They want to dictate your diet. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Why don't you gently set your Bibles down? And why don't you raise your hands, if you would, with me, and let's just ask the Lord to speak to us in these next few moments. Would you raise your voice with me and ask the Lord to speak to you? Come on, really raise your voice and, and let him know that you came for a word today. God, I, I came to hear something. Lord, I want to have that fervency like Jacob. I'm not going to let you go today until you speak to my situation. That, that's it. Lord, I, I love you and I thank you, God, for the liberty and the freedom that we have in the Holy Ghost. I thank you for the presence that we celebrate, God, uh, the victory that we have in you that today we celebrate. And so today, God, let us walk in freedom, liberty. Let me stand behind the cross, and I pray you would speak to us, God. We want to hear what thus saith the Lord today, so let my voice be the amplifier of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Why don't you clap your hands unto the Lord? And why don't you shout unto God with the voice of triumph? We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you high-five your neighbor, let them know they look good today, and you may be seated. We live in a culture of consumption. It's estimated that 16% of the world's population, respectively America and what makes up the European Union, that 16% is responsible for consuming 74% of the world's resources. We are consumers. Better yet, we are out of control consumers. At the conclusion of the first quarter of this year, it was reported that Americans' total credit card debt soared to staggering heights of 900 and 86 billion with a B dollars. It's reported that the average household in America has upwards of $8,000 in credit card debt. This isn't surprising when you consider that the daily sales, daily sales of Amazon 
average of about $1.29 billion. The average American, it says, spends over $300 a month in dining out, with the average American going out to eat at least six times a week. We, we are creatures of consumption. In 2022, it was reported that the average U.S. adult spent 13 hours and 11 minutes consuming media each day. That's almost four days of constant consumption in a week devoted to digital media, our smartphones, our computers, our social networks. If you take that even further back, that's, that's just under six months of cons constant consuming of digital videos and audios, subscriptions, YouTube, TV, radio, you name it. The average person, they say, spends about two and a half hours a day on social media and about three hours on streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, YouTube. We're always consuming, always feasting, always indulging. I don't know if Solomon quite had this in mind when he wrote this in Proverbs chapter 30 in verse 15. He said, the leech has two suckers that cry out, more, more. True, truly, that's the, the cry of the heart of the consumer. Ne never content, always wanting more. Never satisfied, always indulging on more. And, and as the old adage goes, you are what you eat. Or, or allow me to say it this way. You become what you consume. So this begs the question today, what are you consuming? What, what are the things that you allow to entertain you? As we said last week, we live in a post-Christian world. We call it, for the series, Babylon. It's a world that doesn't esteem or revere the things of God. It's a culture that is anti-God. Culture controlled by a very clear, godless agenda. And it's in this culture that it's clear that the spirit of Antichrist is at work. Speaking of this, John would say in 1 John 4 and 3, he said, In every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Every Spirit that denies Christ is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. And he says, it's already in the world. Verse 6, he says, for we are of God, and he knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know two things, the spirit of truth and the spirit of of air. You see, it doesn't take a degree or, or someone who is looking for it to see the spirit of air at work in our world. They're trying their hardest to normalize what is not of God. They're trying to get the people of God to tolerate the very thing that we should hate. 
trying to get us to allow what we should clearly reject. This is a spirit of antichrist. And the goal of this spirit is to tell you what to watch, to persuade you in how you should think, to influence you in what you should like, and to shape you in what you should do. I don't know if you've done any research on artificial intelligence and how they're using it today, but, but they're creating this AI that is able to think for you, to, to understand and analyze your behaviors. I, I find it very weird that on a Sunday morning when I get in my car, my Google Maps launches where it knows I'm going already. This is where you normally go on Sunday, so here's the directions if you'd like it. I remember a couple years ago, I was riding in the car with a friend. We were talking. The phone was off. We were talking about a Dave Ramsey episode, and in the midst of that episode, a young, young boy calls in, and, 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 and turns out Dave finds out he has you know, $30,000, $40,000 from his business. He's 15, and Dave says, what do you do? And he begins to explain what he does uh, he did something called drop shipping. And I had no idea what drop shipping was. And so I looked at my friend and I said, what, what's drop shipping? I've never heard of this before. And he begins to explain to me what it is, what this concept is. I, I've never searched for this on my phone. I, even before that day, I had never heard the term drop shipping. And he said, well, maybe I can find the episode. And he goes on YouTube and types in Dave Ramsey and we get an episode on YouTube and he puts it up. And the first the first. Uh, what do you call it, uh, the, app, or not, the advertisement that comes up is on learning more about drop shipping. Coincidence? There, there is a clear agenda. I'm not trying to scare you, but, but we're, we're very naive if we don't think that, that, that marketing and, and, and that People who are trying to make money off of your consumption are not trying to study your habits and trying to put little cookies out there so that when you launch Amazon, the things that you were talking about in private come up on your phone. We have friends that work at high places uh, for, for uh, some of these companies, and, and they say, this is exactly what's taking place. There's an agenda. Nothing is innocent. Nothing is by accident. Everything has an agenda. Everything has a purpose and a message. And, and Solomon would say this in Proverbs 23 and 1. He said, while dining with a ruler, pay attention to what you put before you. If you're a big eater, put a knife to your throat. Don't desire all the delicacies, for he might be trying to trick you. Could it, could it be that what seems innocent is really not? That, that what seems entertaining, really is masking an agenda. What you laugh at when you watch an episode is trying to normalize you to sin. And so instead of putting something out there that's blatant that you would reject, we put it in an episode of your favorite show, and you laugh about it, you don't think twice about it, and by doing that, it's subtly programming you to accept that, to be okay with that. It's what we consume. That's why the people of God, we need to be very careful with what we consume. We, we need to be very careful with, with the things we allow our eyes to view. We need to be careful to what we allow our ears to listen to. We need to be careful with what we call entertainment. As we stated last week, through a succession of dishonorable kings, men that invited and participated in the worship of false gods, 
Leaders that had showed disdain and failed to follow the commands and decrees of God. God finally has enough. It finally is at a point where God can't wink at it any longer. He can't turn his eye towards it or away from it. And as a result, he allows the Babylonians to come in and to destroy the temple and to carry away his people. 2 Kings 24 and 16 says, All the valiant men, 7,000 craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. They, they destroyed the temple. They, they destroyed the sacred things. They, they, they annihilated a lot of Judah. And then those that were the remnant, they said, you're going to come and you're going to work for us and you're going to serve in the courts. During this time, Nebuchadnezzar makes Mataniah the king. But like the Hebrew children, Nebuchadnezzar first changes Mataniah's name to Zedekiah. And here, the name has significance. Because Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was acting under the prompting of God. He changes his name from Mataniah, which means a gift from Jehovah, to Zedekiah, which means Jehovah's righteousness. It maybe doesn't seem bad at first until you understand and peel back the layers to the name. It, 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 it speaks of justice. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of a God who has a high standard. And if you don't meet it, he will let you go. Zedekiah fulfilled his name. As he rejected the things of God, God rejected him. It's in this environment that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah find themselves captive and serving in the courts of the Babylonian king. And as they serve in the courts, it's the decree and it's the desire of the king that they should eat what he wants them to eat. He wants to dictate what they're going to drink. He dictates their diet. Maybe at first glance it seems uh, like a blessing. Now they don't have to toil or hunger. They don't have to search for food. But when you peel back the layers, you see what's taking place. Daniel 1 and 5 records this. It says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. Seems generous. Seems like a good thing until you understand a bit about the Jewish diet. First thing, the the, the food that they would have partaken of first would have been offered to idols. As it was in Babylonian customs before you would eat the food, it would first be offered to their false gods. And clearly in the law it dictates that the Jews were not to eat food offered to idols. And so to accept that diet would be a violation of his, his upbringing. It would be a violation of the very thing that he knew to be sacred so he would have to reject it. As a Jew, they had strict dietary laws which were not adhered to by the Babylonians. And so to eat the food would violate the covenant with God and his word as they were possibly presented with foods that the Lord had said, these are unclean and you are not to touch these foods. And lastly, by Eastern standards, to share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. It was a symbolic gesture of covenant relationship. And so for them to sit at the king's table meant that they were covenanting themselves with the king, that they were coming in friendship with him. And Daniel said, I can't have anything to do with this. I can't eat what the king asks me to eat. I can't eat what the king wants me to eat. And Daniel would, would not stand for this because he was a child of God. And he knew what he consumed mattered. 
understand something today. What we consume matters. It's, it's the goal of the enemy to get us to have a diet without distinction. He wants you to consume the same things the world consumes, that you would blur the lines between what is holy and unholy, between what is clean and unclean, that you would consume with your flesh in mind and not in the spirit. He wants you to get so full of the things of the world that you have no room or appetite for the things of God. That, that you pack your day full. Uh, again, hear me today. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Not everything we consume is sinful. But if we get so caught up with the consuming worldly things, we won't leave any room for the things of God. And that's why there are people today that can't pray and they have no time to read their word. and They have no time to fast because their flesh dictates what they consume. Their flesh calls the shots. And so he loves it when we feast on media and entertainment. He loves it when we consume what is worldly. The enemy loves it when we consume the news and gorge ourselves on politics. You see, the enemy wants us to have a steady diet of junk food. I, growing up, I loved junk food, man. I, that was the aisle that caught my attention, that had my heart. I knew that with Pringles, once you pop, the fun truly didn't stop. You just reach your hand, and as I got older, I ran into first world problems. My hand got too big to get to the bottom, and so you had to kind of, you know, employ one of those. How many of you had, had parents that say, you can't, don't eat, don't get so filled up on junk food that you don't eat? meal. Many a nights I sat at the, the Meyer dinner table because I rejected the, the vegetables. I, I rejected <laughs> Bishop's back. <laughs> Many nights I, I rejected those things. I would, I would put them in, in a napkin and deposit them in the toilet. Better yet, when we got a dog, I realized he didn't like them either, and so the things that he could tolerate, I would share with him the other things he'd spit out and would rat on me. I like junk food, and, and today, if we're not careful, we can subscribe to a junk food diet. I, I learned that our world has a, a junk food version of just about anything important. The junk food version of love is convenience. Why fall in love with someone when I can lust after something online? When I, when I can create a perception and a persona and I can go into my room when no one else, ah, I can watch whatever I want to watch. I, I, I can have a relationship with something that isn't real. Junk food version of friendship is popularity on social media. We equate likes for friendship. I have 955 friends on Facebook. You don't realize that most of them wish me a happy birthday. A couple of them will poke me occasionally. But yet we feel so lonely. We have all these friends that are doing all these things, yet we sit at home at night. And we've accepted the junk food version of friendship. 
The junk food version of religion is politics. We have people today that, that can't tell you where Malachi is, but they can tell you about every Republican candidate that's going to be in this first debate. We have people that, that haven't memorized one scripture, but they know factoids and conspiracies, and they're knee-deep in what's taking place in America and what's taking place with Trump's indictments. But yet we've not taught a Bible study because we've subscribed to this junk food version of if I know what's going on in politics, somehow I'm ready. But politics can't replace religion. The junk food version of truth is relevance. And the enemy is content as long as we feast and consume junk food. But as I said earlier, you become what you consume. Here's the thing I've, I've learned about junk food. It may temporarily fill you, but usually afterwards it makes you regret what you did. It's like every time I give McDonald's a chance, we, we've broken up a long time ago, but, but every once in a while I drive past in those golden arches, it makes me reminisce back to my childhood, and I turn it and I say, I'm going to give you another chance, McDonald's, today, and I, I eat the, the, the cheeseburger or the McChicken sandwich, and 20 minutes later, my stomach says, why? She don't love you. It ain't even real chicken. You don't, if you don't consume the fries in the first two seconds, they're toxic. <laughs> That's what junk food is. It, it's something that, that temporarily fills a void, but afterwards it leaves us feeling emptier, feeling the side effects of what's to come. That, that's why some of you come here today and you feel empty. That's why some of you are consumed with depression and anxiety and, and, and fears that's why some of you are so filled with lust and, and, and worldly desires because the consumption is controlling your impulses. It's amazing. They've done studies that, that 30 minutes on Facebook skyrockets the feelings of loneliness and depression. That, that looking at the news heightens our fear and our emotions. The watching ungodly things with, with things that we wouldn't want to show anyone will awaken lustful desires because you become what you consume. But, but today the words of Jesus are still so powerful. It's an invitation really when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. He said, if you're, if you're hungry for something, don't just be satisfied with a snack. Don't just be satisfied with junk food. But why don't you long for righteousness? Why don't you get a desire and a hunger in your heart for what is right? And if you chase after and consume the things that are right, Jesus says, you'll be filled. You won't have a, a hangover. You won't have a, a negative effect. It's going to fill you. It's going to satisfy the void within the depths of your soul. Today, we need to have a hunger for the things of God. It, it needs to be the things and the desires of our heart that that's what I want to consume. I'm not going to let Babylon dictate my diet. No, I want to come to the house of God, and I want to feast on the word of God, and I want to feast on relationship with God, and I want to hunger for what is right. But Daniel purposed in his heart, that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. 
or with the wine which he drank. Daniel was a man that in the midst of captivity was determined to defile himself. Understand Daniel's plight. Daniel may have had family members that had been killed in the siege. Daniel's home, the place that he grew up, the place he had fond memories had been destroyed. The place uh, uh, and the friendships that he had grown up with, the places that he had gone to church, all desecrated and destroyed. And here, if anyone has a a reason to be frustrated with God, if, if anyone has a reason to be angry with God, it's Daniel. But Daniel says, listen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And even though I can't control the outcome of what's taking place, I can make a decision that I won't defile myself. Understand something. And you may want to write this down. Convictions always challenge our level of commitment. In a world that screams consumption, we have to be people of commitment. In a world that screams do what feels good, we have to be people of conviction. It's imperative that we're cautious with what we consume. Understand something, just because it's accessible doesn't mean it's acceptable. Just because you can get your hands on it, just because it's cheap, doesn't mean it has eternal value. Like Daniel, we need to make a determination that we will not defile ourselves with the things the world has to offer. David thought about this moment maybe when he penned, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. So what are you saying, preacher? What, what is the rating that I can't? Can I not watch TV MA? Are you saying that I, I can't watch rated R? What, what are you saying I can and cannot watch? David said, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. I'm not going to defile myself by consuming that. I'm not going to let that enter into the gates of my eyes, which is going to go to my mind, and it's going to affect the way I think and the way I act. David said, conviction won't allow me to look at the things that will defile me. I can't look at the things that will destroy me. I cannot entertain what's ungodly. I cannot tolerate what is lewd and immoral. Convictions always challenge our level of commitment, and this is where a lot of believers get it wrong. You have to understand something. In these last month and a half, if you look at my message, I've talked a whole lot about holiness. The Lord will not let me get away from this subject. I believe that the soon return of the Lord is imminent, and he is coming back for a bride without spot, without blemish or wrinkle. And so today is not a day where you can choose how you want to live and how you want to act. We can't let the world define what we will do and what we won't do because it's the word of God that we will be judged upon. It's the word of God that when we stand before him, he's going to open up. He's not going to look at culture and say, you had the latest fashion. No, he's going to say, my word said this and you did but how do I develop convictions it's a good question I'm glad you asked it I want you to know that conviction comes from our commitment to the word of God Job would utter this he said I have not departed from the commandments of his lips I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food Let me say it in my own version. He's saying, God, your commands are more important than the cravings I have. God, your decrees are more important than my carnal desires. 
And so if it does not fall in alignment with your word, I will not consume it. If it does not fall within the pages of your word, I will not entertain it. If it does not fall within what you say is holy, I will not do it. Later, Job would say, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look at a woman in lust? He said, because of his word, I've had to make a covenant with my eyes. And I've had to say, you can't look at that. You can't entertain that. When it comes to your mind, you have to look away. The law of God produced conviction within Job, which caused Job to make a covenant or a commitment to God. That's why Paul would write to the young pastor, Timothy, I'm sure, feeling pressure as a young pastor of a church. And he said, Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's the scripture, Timothy. It's not what people think. It's not what society says. It doesn't matter what the elders of the church says. It's the word of God that you get your marching orders for. And it's the word of God that's profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? It's what is right. He said the word of God is the the purveyor of truth. It it will tell you what is right. And it's also there to tell you about reproof, which is what is not right. So there we have it. In the word of God, we know what's right and we know what's not right. He said, but it's also good for correction. What's correction? It's how to get right. So so God, I, I made some mistakes. Your word will tell me how to get back on my way because as David said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. And so if I'm going in the wrong direction, your word will illuminate it and it will say, you need to make a course correction. That, that's why when some of you come to church, you feel convicted. Conviction is not the enemy being, or, or is not the pastor being nasty. Uh, conviction is not God trying to be mean to you. Conviction is exposing something within you. God is saying, I, I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you wouldn't talk that way. I wish you wouldn't allow those things in your home. I wish you would get rid of that. He said it's also for instruction in righteousness, and that's how to stay right. It's the word of God is truth, it, and truth produces conviction. But the second thing, and how we get conviction, how we develop conviction, is conviction comes from our commitment to our relationship with God. Paul would write to the church of Corinth and he would say, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? <laughs> this is my body, I'll do with it as I want. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I'm my own independent person. I get a paycheck, and I have a car and a house, and I'll go where I want to go. The Lord says, I'm sorry, you've been bought with a price. So so if you've identified with the fact that you've been justified by the blood of Jesus, if you've repented of your sins, if you've gone down in the water of baptism, if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, your life is not your own, which means you don't have rights into what you will and what you won't do. But rather your body and your spirit, which are the Lord's, are meant that you would glorify him with your body and with your spirit. And how do I understand that it's getting in relationship with Jesus? It's each day getting into my private prayer closet and saying, God, I need to be more like you today. And God will begin to shine a light on your life and say, I wish you wouldn't do that. And I wish you would do this. And I wish you wouldn't go there. And I wish you wouldn't say that. God wants to speak. Church, we have master classes on how to hear the voice of God, but he, I've understood, is speaking every day if I would open his word. 
I can't tell you how many times in my daily Bible reading I get a word that carries me through the day. I didn't plan it that way. I wasn't reading until I found the word I needed. No, the Lord said, this is your daily bread. This is what you need to consume. This is what's going to sustain you. This is what's going to keep you. This is what's going to direct you today. So we need to be a church of conviction. Understand, if we don't develop strong convictions, we will become weak and we will compromise. I don't want to be a weak church. As a matter of fact, I refuse for this to be a weak church. We are not going to be a Laodicean church. We are not going to be lukewarm where God wants to spew us out of his mouth. No, we're going to be fire hot. We're going to be exactly what he wants us to be. Then that means we're going to be a church of conviction. Understand something. Compromise destroys. Conviction protects. Compromise weakens your faith. Conviction strengthens it. And so don't look at conviction as legalism. Don't look at conviction as laws. Don't look at conviction as control. No. Conviction is strength. It's alignment. It's you becoming more like Jesus. It's you becoming holy as He is holy. I believe we need a fresh baptism of conviction. As a matter of fact, would you lift your hands all over this place and would you just pray this prayer, God, baptize me with fresh conviction today. Come on, lift your voice to him today. Lord, I need a fresh baptism of conviction. God, over my family, over my house, God. Lord, let conviction be the thing that dictates what we do and what we don't do. Scripture says, verse 15 of Daniel 1, at the end of the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacy. 17 says, in these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. See, Daniel and his friends' commitment to their conviction pay off. And when all is said and done, they're healthier. They're eating differently than everyone else, and they're healthier, they're wiser. God, God allows because of their conviction, he, he elevates them. Understand, it's not God's desire that we merely survive in a post-Christian world. It's his desire that we thrive. That, that's why this sermon series is not called Surviving Babylon because in the last days, God is not wanting his church to merely survive. But when I read the book, I see a church that's thriving amidst adversity. We're not cowering. We're not hiding. We're not, we are thriving and moving forward. God wants his people to thrive. He wants his church to thrive. God wants to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He wants to elevate us in this end time hour. He he wants to say to the enemy, have you considered this church in New Berlin? But this only comes, this only comes at the response of our commitment to our convictions. We're not entitled this. We've done nothing to deserve this. 
God doesn't owe us spiritual gifts. God doesn't owe us revival. We, we get into alignment with God. We get into the flow of the Spirit. And then God says, I can trust you with more. We get to a place of consecration where God says, now I can use you more. We get to a place of humility where God says, now I know if I do something in New Berlin, nobody will glory in it. God doesn't want a revival where people walk away and say, it was me. I was the one that's been praying and fasting for this. I've been the one. No, he's saying, what I'm about to do, no man can glory in. Scripture says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayer. This is what, what caused, uh, the, the, what happened in the upper room to carry past the upper room. Verse 43, and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. He said, listen, if you are obedient to what I've called you to do, if you're obedient to the commitments that I've asked you to do, I'll be the one that will control the outcome. I'll be the one that will bring people. I'll be the one that will let divine intersection happen at your work. I'll be the one where people are driving past and their car steering wheel just turns into the church. I'll draw them from the hills and from the highways and from the byways. Just you fall in alignment with my purpose and my plan. So it becomes clear. Our diet determines our destiny. What we consume determines our calling. Our commitment and conviction determine God's choosing. We're not here today waiting on God. We're not here today waiting on him to do something. He's waiting on us. He's saying, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's what you have to do. And if you do that, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and I will heal their land would you stand with me all over this place and would you lift your hands to heaven and would you receive that today? Would you say to God, Lord, I want to be in that number. God, I want to be in that number. Lord, I know you're coming back for a church. God, help me not to be distracted. Help me not to consume the things of this world. Help me not to be so filled with myself that I'm not hungry for you. sure it had been a long day, not to mention the stress 
of going through Samaria, the people that the Jews despised. But it was the master's request. So the disciples complied. And as Jesus goes ahead, he has a divine appointment with a woman at a well. He begins to talk with her. It's a transformative conversation. It's a revelatory conversation. And at the conclusion of it, she's compelled to go back to her village. She says, come see the man who told me everything. Disciples wanting to help Jesus, urge him to eat. Jesus, you're so focused on ministry. You got Eat, Jesus. You're going to get weak. Eat something. Jesus responds in a cryptic fashion. He says, I have food to eat which you know not of. Disciples ponder what Jesus says. They look at each other and they say, someone brought him food while we were gone? He asked us to go get food. Maybe someone fed him. Maybe that conversation with that woman, maybe she fed him. Jesus understands their confusion and he looks at them and he clarifies. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was saying, I'm not here to consume earthly things, but eternal ones. My, my, my food is not natural. It's not physical food. It's spiritual. The, the, the nourishment that, that I'm after, it's not carnal. But it's to do the will of the Lord. Later, the disciples would be with Jesus in a large crowd, and they would say, Master, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus instructs them, and he says, After this manner, pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, I want to be your daily provision. I want to be the source of your fulfillment. I want to be your nourishment. I want to be what you hunger and thirst after. Today in a world filled with selfish consumers only concerned about their carnal appetite, God is looking for someone who wants that which is spiritual. God is looking for a husband. He's looking for a wife that will hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's looking for someone in a building that would hunger for the supernatural. He's looking for someone that's not content with just a little touch from the master's table, but daily wants to dine with him. Have we got it wrong? 
been so fixated and focused on the things of this world and God is saying today, would you make me once again the object of your affection? If you're to thrive in Babylon, husband, you need to be hungry for the things of God. You want to thrive, son, daughter, you have to be more hungry for the things of God than the things of this world. I believe he's calling us today. Scripture says in Revelations chapter 3 and verse 20, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man would hear my voice and open it, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. God wants to commune with you. But we have to first answer the door. We have to daily let him in. We have to daily make ourselves available to the master. I open these altars today. I would encourage you to come and to find a place. Would you ask God to help you, to strengthen you, God, I'm making a commitment today. I know we're starting the fast next week, Sunday, but Lord, I'm making a commitment today. I want you more than my necessary food. I want your word to be the thing that I crave more than the news. I want your will to be what I hunger for more than entertainment. God, I've been distracted. Lord, there's been so many things vying for my attention. I pray today that you would just let it all be still so I can hear your voice today, God. And I can realign myself with your purpose. I can realign myself with your will.